This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. School of Humans. It's August 24th, 2005. It's sweltering hot in India. Mosquitoes swarm even by the banks of the river Ganges in the holy city of Rishikesh. The sun rises over the river, casting a shadow on Vednikitan Ashram. The gates of the ashram open slowly. Out walks a boy, brown hair, pensive gaze. He's not wearing a shirt or shoes and looks out of place next to the elaborate Indian architecture. Barefoot, he wanders down the road, away from the ashram. He's headed somewhere. Where? We'll never know. This will be the last sighting of Ryan Chambers, but it won't be the last time you'll hear his name. Ryan Chambers is the first poster child of India Syndrome, a controversial psychosis that presumably affects Westerners, confronted by the culture shock, spiritual influence, and destabilizing dangers of India. But was it enlightenment Ryan was seeking that ultimately set him astray? A child's death is agony for any parent, but to have a child disappear without a trace is a whole different kind of torture. Diane Chambers, the mother of the missing 21-year-old Australian, Ryan Chambers, shares a term for this kind of loss. Ambiguous loss, it's a loss, but you don't know whether it's a permanent loss or a part-time loss or whether you've lost them forever or you haven't, or, you know, like it's just, or what is the loss? There's no evidence of the loss. There is no evidence. Ryan's body has never been found, and his having disappeared in India adds an additional layer of stress to the situation, which was confirmed when Diane reported Ryan missing to the federal police. And she was taking all the details and she said, oh, like, where did he go missing? And I said, in India. She said, oh, India of all places, not India. And I felt like saying, I don't need to hear that. I know it's hard enough as it is. I don't need you confirming it for me. India is difficult to navigate. It's dense, crowded. There's a language and culture barrier. 
and it just operates under a different set of rules than the West. As Aaron, Ryan's brother, points out, it's a culture shock, even if you're prepared for it. The thing I was safe from the moment I stepped off the plane, it's just sensory overload. There is noise, there is rubbish, there are beggars, there are cows in the middle of the street eating, like standing on mounds of rubbish, eating plastic bags, cars everywhere, people coming up to you that you don't know if they're friendly or want to rob you. As we discussed in the last episode, this culture shock or sensory overload, as Aaron puts it, had an effect on Ryan, an effect that could have pushed him over the edge. Ryan's is one of the many stories we'll share of people who were presumably seeking a spiritual edge in India and then disappeared. But first, let's further investigate the syndrome associated with these tragedies. India syndrome. Is it a myth or a legitimate risk? We spoke to a vetted psychiatrist in Delhi to find out. To be honest, I have not come across the term at all. Probably was used by the French uh, psychiatrist, Regis Arold. This is Dr. Harshet. He's worked as a psychiatrist for the past 10 years in hospitals in Bangalore, Rishikesh, where Ryan went missing, and Delhi. And like he said, he's not come across the term India syndrome at all. He attributes the term to Regis Arold, the French psychiatrist we talked about last episode, who coined the term. It's 8.30 p.m. in Delhi. Dr. Harshet is taking a break from his busy shift to speak with me. His voice bounces off the white tiles of a sterile hospital room. It is a misnomer to be, uh, to be said that it's India syndrome. I would rather say it is a syndrome of illnesses which are seen in migrants or tourists. Uh, migration as such is known to cause a lot of stress on people if you look If you look into data, be it in America or in the Europe, you would see that migrant population have higher number of mental illnesses compared to their home state population. Let's say someone from Africa comes to US, he may have a higher chance of mental illness compared to his own population in Africa. It is nothing to do with his genetics. It is due to the stress of the migration. So other thing is the cultural shock they receive when they come to that place. So Dr. Harshet does believe it's possible for foreigners to develop a psychosis due to travel and culture shock. But labeling it India syndrome is inaccurate. So why has this term caught on? The term is quite catchy, so people would obviously would love to hold on to it. It is something like Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome as such is about uh, someone who is having post-traumatic stress disorder. But then if you look at it, it's completely taken off by that name. Stockholm Syndrome was a term first used by the media in 1973, when four hostages who were taken during a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, defended their captors. And though the syndrome is rare, according to the FBI, about 5% of hostage victims show evidence of Stockholm Syndrome. It's still featured in police hostage negotiation courses. But as one chief negotiator said, I would be hard-pressed to say that Stockholm Syndrome exists. Sometimes in the field of psychology, people are looking for cause and effect when it isn't there. 
but Stockholm Syndrome is still a widely used term in the media, just like India Syndrome. See, any article to be published needs to have some uh, eye candy, needs to have some eye candy. So you have something which is sensationalizing that it's India as such has been known as the land of mystics and uh, mysteries in the West. So when you put something like India syndrome, obviously you are catching eyeballs. He's right. As an American, articles and books that feature the phenomenon affiliated with people who go missing in India definitely caught my attention. But I've also gotten to know the families of those missing people. And in Ryan Chambers' case, it's just inaccurate to assume a syndrome had anything to do with his disappearance. He woke up in a train station in India, had no idea who he was, where he was, when he was. That's Aaron Chambers, Ryan's brother. And no, unfortunately, he's not talking about finding Ryan. He's explaining an experience journalist David McLean had in 2002 in India that he shared on an episode of This American Life. According to McLean, he woke up on a train platform in India with no idea of who he was, no passport, no money, no identity. He was taken to a mental hospital by police where he started to hallucinate so severely he had to be tied down. After hearing about McLean's experience, Ryan's bizarre behavior before his disappearance made a lot more sense to Aaron. His mind had been basically wiped and somehow got in contact with people he knew and then his family and they got him home. And it was his story about him, like that journey and him rebuilding his life. And he basically puts it down to the anti-malarial drug he was on, which was Larium. Ryan was taking the same anti-malarial drug, Larium, while he was in India. So that's, I guess, what really sort of hit me. It's like, wow, maybe that's the reason for this because, you know, there can always be speculation. Was Ryan a seeker? Did he do drugs there? Um, you know, was he, was he prone to some mental illness that we didn't know about? I don't know, maybe. And maybe, maybe Larium and its potential psychotic side effects, like maybe that has something to do with it. And it just, that seems to me like the most likely scenario if I look at it. And I think that's where I probably sit on what actually happened. I'd say it's down to that, that anti-malarial drug. That's where I've settled. Larium is the brand name for mefloquine, which was the anti-malarial drug of choice for soldiers in the British Army, deployed in certain areas like India, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, where they may be at risk of contracting from mosquitoes. But the military police concluded that it should be a drug of last resort after an investigation into reports of severe side effects, which include visual and auditory hallucinations, acute anxiety, depression, unusual behavior, and suicide. I met an Australian guy when I was there the first time who was with Ryan the night before he left and said he was running around the ashram grounds trying to fly. And then you look at his journal in the last couple of pages, this big scroll across the last two pages in coloured markers just saying something along the lines of, if I'm missing, I'm not dead. I need to free minds, but first I need to free my own. And it looked like an alternate personality had written it or someone else altogether. And apparently he he couldn't sleep properly and he went into someone else's room in the ashram, not John's, but another person's, and asked if he could stay there the night because he was just afraid of something. The guy said, no, go back to your own room. Diane shares more information about Ryan's encounter with this guy, one of the last people to see him before he vanished. He said that he had an appointment to see 
a yogi that was staying at the ashram and apparently he's the guy that when he went, he must have gone back and met with him and he asked him if he could stay in his room that night and the guy said yes and then he said no. See, this is what's telling me that Ryan was mentally unstable at the time. He was looking, he was calling out for help. He was looking for help. He was looking for somewhere to, something to to anchor him and it didn't happen. From these stories, it's possible that Ryan was displaying the severe side effects of larium, acute anxiety, visual hallucinations, unusual behavior, unfortunately, maybe even suicide. In a 2015 article in The Independent, it was reported that the British Ministry of Defense had been accused of knowingly risking the mental health of its own soldiers, after new figures showed that nearly 1,000 British servicemen and women have required psychiatric treatment after taking larium. And in the States, larium was most famously investigated after four soldiers from Fort Bragg, who took the anti-malarial drug while serving in Afghanistan, killed their wives in 2002. Even though in 2009, the United States military stopped prescribing larium to the majority of its soldiers, in 2012, Staff Sergeant Robert Bales pleaded guilty to killing 16 Afghan civilians while he was on the drug. When we talk about larium, we're talking about big pharma, which wields a lot of power. So these detrimental side effects aren't exposed. Until they've affected so many people, the danger of the drug can no longer be concealed. In 2001, a double-blind study done in the Netherlands was published showing that 67% of people who took larium experienced one or more adverse effects, and 6% had side effects so severe they required medical attention. So now, there are stories out there about the potential dangers of larium, and books, articles, and programs like 60 Minutes that are featuring them. The brand Larium is no longer sold in the United States, but that's just a brand name. Mefloquine, the actual anti-malarial drug, is still available and commonly prescribed in the U.S. But since 2013, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration added a warning to the prescription label regarding the potential for permanent neuropsychiatric side effects that might continue even after you stop using the drug. This is medical speak for permanent brain damage. And other clinical write-ups about mefloquine aka larium, it's noted that the drug should be used with caution in patients with a previous history of depression or mental illness. I've had a belief right from the beginning, not that I realised it necessarily before he left, but when you backtrack lots of things, I think he teetered on the border of a mental illness. These clinical warnings cautioning patients with mental illness or depression came out eight years after Ryan disappeared. So no one, including Ryan's family, could have prepared for what happened to him in India. Aaron believes the side effects of larium led to his brother's psychotic break and disappearance. But Jock and Diane aren't completely sold on larium being the cause of Ryan's disappearance. After three investigations, one documentary, and years searching for their son, the Chambers don't want to close the door on any speculations. But maybe just one. 
was there ever a moment where you thought he had sort of just left his life behind? For me, no. No. But that's only that's only instinctively, you know. I did for a short time. Did you? Yeah. But Yeah, nah. But it, it might might have been a situation where he would leave it and wouldn't contact us, but he was so close to his brothers that wouldn't be the case. And now fifteen years, well, no way in the world do I think that. So the chambers don't believe Ryan is out there after fifteen years trying to free minds on some spiritual quest. Though after he was reported missing, there were multiple sightings of Ryan around India, which were investigated by the family and unfortunately led nowhere. Ryan is still officially missing. His body has never been found. But Kundan Negi, who was part of Rishikesh's local police force investigating Ryan's disappearance, has been quoted saying that the Ganges, the holy river running through Rishikesh, was especially high when Ryan went missing. So if Ryan had drowned, the high water and intense current of the river might have had something to do with there being no evidence of his body. Full disclosure, the chambers didn't get much help from the authorities in India during their multiple investigations. I think the police's job is to rule out the fact of it being a homicide. Yeah, the police really didn't have anything, any involvement. And we looked and did our own search, basically. From their thorough search that has spanned years, with one investigation captured in the 2011 documentary, Missing in the Land of Gods, which you can access on the Ryan Chambers Missing in India Facebook page, Jock and Diane have been able to piece together information on what might have happened to Ryan's body. At the time Ryan went missing, if he had have drowned in the Ganges River because they opened the barrages, they opened the barrages to prevent the flooding, so if he had have drowned, his body just would have washed right down the river. In 2005, a team checked out all of the river barrages, offshoots and flood overflow areas. In total, the Ganges River was searched on three occasions. But as Diane points out, the barrages were open when Ryan disappeared. So instead of being caught in the barrage gates, like most bodies are, Ryan's body would have flowed right down the river, potentially washing up on a bank somewhere, or being dragged out. I've heard that lots of bodies are pulled from the Ganges, um, and conversations Dad's had with people said that they generally don't take photos of people that aren't Indian. So this is an issue. If Ryan's body was found, and because he's not Indian, there was no picture taken as evidence, then nobody would ever know. We'll hear from someone in a later episode who experienced this firsthand, but for now it's important to think about this. If the authorities only take pictures of drowned Indians, what happens to the bodies or any evidence of non-Indians or drowned foreigners? And why aren't their pictures also taken? I imagine if, if you've got lots of foreigners coming over, going missing, meeting an untimely end, that's got to that's harm tourism. In other words, a dead foreigner isn't good for tourism, but a missing foreigner... Yeah, and I guess you think about it, there's a bit of a mystique about someone going missing, right? Like, uh, what have they gone seeking and what are they, you know, are they, have they reached this enlightenment? Have they, have, have they become, you know, are they now one of these kind of mystical people in India? Like, yeah, that's very, very different to they, they died. <laughs> yeah, I guess that probably adds to the mystique of the place in a way. 
A missing person builds mystique, and mysteries can be seductive. But they can also lead to inaccurate theories like India Syndrome. But India Syndrome is just that, a theory. But that theory has been tagged onto a real psychosis that can affect foreigners and non-foreigners alike in India, though seekers might be more susceptible to it. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. India syndrome is not technically a thing because it's not an officially recognized disease. But the psychosis that it's inaccurately labeled is a thing. As Dr. Arshed explained to me, foreigners who experience extreme culture shock, illicit drug use, or have mental illness in their history and quit their meds to go to India looking for alternative medicine or a lifestyle change could potentially experience a psychotic break. But what's most alarming is psychotic breaks occur in some of the most popular places, in circumstances that I, as a seeker, have sought out, and it felt safe to me. Here's Dr. Harshit again. Lot of these people come to learn yoga. Lot of these people come to learn meditation. People do have a misconception about yoga in the sense yoga includes exercises as well as meditation. Now, lot of people who do intense meditation, I'm talking about the mental aspect of it. I'm not talking about the physical aspect of it. I'm not talking about the exercises. Let's say something like Chakrasana, Sirshasana, these are all exercises. There is intense meditation also done, a part of yogic meditation. Now, when people go into intense meditation, be it Indian meditation or European meditation, it has been seen that they are more prone to develop psychosis or, like you said, bipolar affective disorder. 
in fact i have seen few cases indians themselves who have gone to for some spiritual discourses where they have uh, had some 10 day intense meditation and they have come to me with depression dr harshit's words echo what we heard from scott carney who told us about the adverse effects meditation had on his student emily so basically meditation doesn't only help focus stress pain relief or give you an overall zen But as Dr. Willoughby Britton, assistant professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University notes in a yoga journal article, meditation can also unearth unpleasant emotions, painful memories, or physical mental disturbances that can be unsettling at best and debilitating at worst. She shares a story about working as a resident in 2006 at an inpatient psychiatric hospital in Arizona. and witnessing two people who were hospitalized after a 10-day meditation retreat. She looked for scientific research to explain this and came up short. So she started to informally ask meditation teachers about the issues they'd encountered and realized negative reactions to meditation were common, and it was evident that a lot of people knew about these potentially dangerous effects and weren't talking about it, which Britain attributes to the multi-billion dollar mindfulness industry. Exposing the dark side of meditation, it's bad for business. Dr. Harshit, however, is an open book about what happens to the brain during meditation and what could potentially lead to a dangerous experience. When you are in a trance or when you are doing intense meditation, uh, one thing is there is a lot of... Uh, cognitively, you are realizing a lot of things about your life. okay and other thing is there lot of neurotransmitter changes happening just like you you would know that lot of yogis can stay for longer periods with uh, you can say in a suspended animation where they don't eat food they breathe lesser their heart rate slows down these are all because of the neurotransmitters of our body which they are able to control they are trained from years or decades you can say but someone let's say me if i go down there and i do that and i'm not trained enough and i go into an intense meditation course for 10 days 15 days and probably it may affect so not being primed for intense meditation could lead to an adverse effect in 2017 dr britton did a study where she looked at nearly 100 interviews with meditation teachers experts and practitioners of western buddhist practices who described their meditation related experiences as challenging distressing or functionally impairing 88% of the meditators in the study reported that these meditation experiences had an impact on their lives beyond their meditation sessions 73% indicated moderate to severe impairment, which means their meditating prompted a reaction or result that kept them from living their normal daily lives. 17% reported feeling suicidal, and another 17% required inpatient hospitalization for psychosis due to meditation. The research showed that these distressing experiences were not limited to people who had a history of mental illness. Though trauma survivors can be particularly susceptible to the adverse effects of meditation because it forces them to lean into their emotions as opposed to avoiding or compartmentalizing them. This leaning in can re-trigger their trauma. I have to say this as a meditator. 
I don't think meditation is bad. I'm just highlighting rarely discussed issues that bring awareness to a practice that's presumed to have only positive effects. Meditation is good, but you should know which type of meditation is good for you. There are multiple types of meditations. Transcendental meditation is quite used a lot even in therapies. So my point is, not all meditation is bad. You should know what you need to choose. So unless you have a learned teacher, it's foolish to go for it, is what my belief is. Is there anything that any meditation you can tell us now that we might want to steer clear of? I am not an expert on meditation and yoga. I am a medical doctor, so I would be the wrong person to suggest anything. There are some upcoming stories we'll be covering where the dangers of meditation will be suspect, so this conversation isn't over. But my conversation with Dr. Harashet is, and before he signed off, he had one final thought on India syndrome. Another thing what I would say is not only about mental illness, but if you look at it with terms to the West, the religious values and the cultural values in the West is crumbling, which is true by the number of people who are winning off religion, if you look at the West. So somewhere people are searching for a truer meaning to their life. They, When they don't find it back home, they tend to go somewhere else. It's just like the famous proverb, the grass is greener on the other side. Dr. Harshit's sentiment resonates with me. Our religious values in the West are crumbling, and I'm one of the people weaning off my Episcopalian upbringing and Catholic fascination to find my own comprehension of a higher source, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it. Most would understand it broadly as spirituality. It's fluid, not constrained by doctrine or organized through a system of power. Spirituality can be what you want it to be. It's your own unique journey. But as we've heard, there's no promise you won't be led astray. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. (sighs) Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot. 
The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. According to the Chambers, Ryan didn't identify as a seeker. But India still draws seekers in droves in search of spiritual connection, quests, and awakenings. There's one seeker, Justin Alexander Shetler, who would more aptly call himself an adventurer and nomad, whose spiritual curiosity and trust in someone who could lead him to enlightenment ultimately led him astray. Before we dig into that story, it's important to know why Westerners, like Justin, are drawn to India's mystique. Here's academic David Hammerback. Personally, I think that there is no such thing as India syndrome. I do think, however, that there are India because of this sort of cultural allure that it has, which is, I think really became doubled or trebled or quadrupled since the 1960s. And the sort of association of India and, and Hinduism and all sorts of aspects of South Asia and Central Asia with uh, counterculture. I think that that led to even more interest by certain, you know, groups of people, mostly younger people, people who've been disaffected by society. And it seems to offer a different way of of living. According to Hammerbeck, Westerners have been romanticizing India's mystic allure for more than a millennia. This obsession dates back to ancient Rome and Greece. I think that there's so many of these really tantalizing aspects of India. And it was fabled going back to the Greeks as being this sort of extraordinary place where other things happen, where are different kinds of of beings. Even Herodotus, the Greek historian, wrote about there was like ants the size of dogs and humans that were many, many, you know, three or four times the size of normal people and all sorts of strange things. So um, I think even going back to like Alexander the Great went as far as India, he went there partially to conquer, but also because he was drawn by these stories of just this foreign otherness of India. And part of that is the mysticism. There's definitely, obviously, a mystical tradition in India. Hammerbeck's Nepalese wife is Hindu. So he's felt tied to the religion for the past 15 years and believes Hinduism plays into the Western fascination with India. I think they're drawn to the mysticism of of Hinduism because in many ways it forms such a clean break from the culture of the West. And in many, many aspects, from the way you practice to the way you live, to the food you eat, to the iconography you're surrounded with, to the community you're in, but a fascination can come with suspicion. We heard earlier from Carney about the detrimental, if not dangerous, effects India can have on Westerners, which Hammerbeck calls the destabilizing dangers of India. There has been a series of texts, novels, and other things written which show that India can have a detrimental effect, but it's autochthonous, meaning it's like it grows out of the soil itself. Um, there's a number of uh, romanticist gothic texts in the early you know 19th century in which this happens where you know westerners are having to do battle with these strange beings that come around almost always at night and there's also these other tropes um such as the thugs 
which is part of India as well. The thugs were an organized gang of professional assassins, sometimes described as the world's first mafia, who operated from the 13th to 19th centuries in India. Members of the fanatical religious group, who were infamous for their ritualistic assassinations, carried out in the name of the fierce Hindu goddess Kali, were known as thugs. This is where the word thug comes from in America. Though the thugs were a real threat, Hammerbeck doesn't believe that India, the country, is a threat, and chalks these destabilizing dangers up to virtual Orientalism, which is a blend of received truths, stereotypes, but most of all the media's repackaging of India's mystic, spiritual, and exotic into a salacious story that will catch and hold someone's attention. But he doesn't necessarily think the media is trying to exploit India. I think it comes from a lack of comprehension and understanding of uh, the religions of India. And this includes Islam um, and how they cohabitate and how, uh, you know, what their specific practices are and their beliefs. I think it's easy to create our own narrative around the unknown. In this case, India. It's also common to view the unknown or someone or something different or other than us as dangerous, which might be why these culture-bound syndromes, including India syndrome, were established. I want to get Ankita's thoughts, someone born and raised in India, on her country's deep-rooted spirituality. India was ruled by people of different religions, people who came from different parts of the world, which is why it, it, it saw such a huge mix of religions and therefore it is seen as a religious country. So I think there is so much diversity that it uh, it's hard to kind of escape uh, some form of religion or some form of spirituality or mysticism if anyone comes to explore India. I assumed India was primarily Hindu, but it's actually a melting pot for religions, which according to India's religion census includes Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Sikhism, and various offshoots of these religions, depending on the location of the followers. So India is spiritually prosperous, which Ankita believes is a draw for Westerners. I mean, the West, it has a lot in terms of material resources, right? So if you're coming from the West to India, people would think, well, why would you leave that country which has so much to give you in terms of wealth and come to a place here which is struggling when it comes to resources. So it must be something that is immaterial, and therefore it would probably be something spiritual. But apparently the draw for Westerners is not only spiritual. My grandfather years ago, he said, oh, I read somewhere that a lot of Westerners are looking for Indian wives because, you, you know, Indians have such good family values. And all their marriages are ending up in divorces, and that's why they are now coming to India looking for Indian women to marry. What? That's awesome. But yeah, he said it with a lot of pride. Westerners are drawn to the spiritual depth and strong values India offers. But like us in the West, where an increasing number of people identify as spiritual rather than religious, India's new generation is also rejecting their country's archaic religions and redefining spirituality for themselves. I was asking a Hindu priest something and I said, there was a notice on the temple in a village in Western India. And I said, it says women are not allowed. Uh, why is that so? And he says, oh, you know, this is Hanuman and he always stayed a bachelor. So he's not, he doesn't like interacting with women. Hanuman is a Hindu god 
usually represented as a monkey. And I said, but God is open to all. He didn't answer my question. He said, where there is faith, there are no questions. In my generation, again, when I talk about there is this kind of dissociation and detachment with a mainstream religion, there's also an attraction towards mysticism uh, and a lot towards mystic poets uh, who do not see God as this uh, being to be feared or do not believe in this extremely hierarchical relationship between God and human. I mean, God would be more like a conscience. God would be more like a friend. And that is the kind of thing younger people relate to more rather than this kind of scary authority imposed. I mean, people, young people want to do something because they understand it to be right, not because they are told they would be punished in hell. They would not be talking about rites and rituals and practices. They would be talking of humanity because that is less about conducting certain rituals and more about meditating, more about the journey of the self, uh, more about understanding the higher powers rather than fearing the higher powers. And where do Westerners go for these spiritual practices when they hit India? I don't see as many foreigners in temples, uh, if I just look at Delhi, but I would see many more of them in yoga studios. So you can say that there are maybe practices associated with both, but then yoga would be a practice where the self is the center, right? You do this and you meditate and then think about God. But if I go to a temple, I would say, okay, buy a garland of flowers, buy this packet of incense sticks, buy this holy thread to tie around a tree and then make this plate, offer this to the idol, go around it five times and then take some of that holy water, drink it up. And then, you know, your wish is supposedly heard and so on. So these are more external practices, while this is more of, again, what, what we were talking earlier of self-reflection, inner journey, seeking inwards, so on. We don't have time to break down India's handful of religions and tie them all to mysticism. Scholars have spent lifetimes examining religions in the East, and they're still figuring it out. But what I took away from this conversation with Ankita is that there is a palpable sense of spirituality and mysticism in India, built on the foundation of a handful of religions. But India's new generation is adapting their own version of spirituality, which is a version Westerners can relate to, as it's something they get a whitewashed version of in their yoga studios in the States. But the mysticism of India is still a draw, and very real. But not every story of a spiritual awakening ends in self-discovery. Justin Alexander Shetler's ended in a different kind of discovery, one that involved a police investigation. I'm 32, and last week I retired. Maybe retirement isn't the right word. If there's a word that means I'm free to live the life of my dreams, I'm that. That's a voiceover actor reading an excerpt from Justin's blog eight years ago. As you can tell, he's extreme. He cashed out his Roth IRA and spent the money on a Sony A7 II camera to capture his escapades. And escapades is a belittling word for the adventures Justin sought out. He was a survivalist who in his youth studied the Apache scouts who moved undetected through the desert and lived off the land. 
He made his own native tools based on drawings he did at New York's Museum of Natural History. And in the summer of 2014, he put his survival skills to the test, trekking across the Himalaya and Tibet with little more than sandals and a knife. He called himself an NYC ninja and proves it with a photo on Instagram of his silhouette against a misty New York City backdrop, 600 feet in the air. He's standing on some sort of railing, presumably on a building he's not supposed to be climbing. There's another shot taken from a cherry red crane looking down on New York cityscape. It makes me dizzy just looking at that photo. The shot is 700 feet in the air. One false move and he's done. Justin identified as a nomad and shared his extreme experiences with his 11,000 Instagram followers and in a blog, Adventures of Justin, where he documented his 18,000-mile trip through the American West on his Royal Enfield motorcycle and an experience he had living with the indigenous tribe, the Muntawai, in Indonesia, where he helped make poison-tipped arrows and wore a loincloth made from tree bark. His photos, videos, and visceral journal entries are intoxicating, and they capture the feeling of the moment. And when Justin turns the camera on himself, he's honestly as breathtaking as the scenery he captures. He's an Adonis. Justin lives and looks like a romanticized version of a legendary explorer, and his mantra speaks to this. Be kind and do epic shit. But did he also romanticize the dangers of living on the edge? In an online interview, an interviewer asked Justin, who was an influencer before you could make a living doing it, why he goes by Justin Alexander Supertramp on Facebook. His answer? Chris McCandless. Chris McCandless, also known by his nickname, Alexander Supertramp, was an American hiker who in 1992 sought solitude in the Alaskan bush with minimal supplies and aspirations to live off the land. He used an abandoned bus he found in the backcountry as a makeshift shelter. The same bus where his dead body, weighing only 67 pounds, was found six months later. Chris died of starvation. In the online interview, Justin finishes his thought on Chris McCandless, saying, Vagabonding and living in the backcountry is a way to make social life feel fresh. I'm not trying to cut myself off from society like he was. I do have a lot of respect for the guy. That said, I think it's too bad we don't look at the many examples of people who went into the wild and lived to tell a great story. Justin documented so many stories in his lifetime, but unfortunately, he hasn't been able to tell his last story. On August 19th, 2016, he wrote his last blog entry from India's Pavardi Valley. In the blog, he writes about a pilgrimage he is going to take into the Himalayas to meditate. The last line reads, I should return mid-September, so if I'm not back by then, don't look for me. Justin's story sounds like an Eastern version of Into the Wild, the 1996 John Krakauer book about Chris McCandless. Though McCandless vanished in the wilderness, his body was found in that abandoned bus on Alaska's Stampede Trail. But Justin's body has never been found. Did Justin meet the same fate as Chris? Or does Justin's last sentiment, if I'm not back by then, don't look for me, have anything to do with his disappearance? We'll find out 
on the next episode of Astray. If you have any information or tips on Ryan Chambers' disappearance, please reach out to Jock Chambers at jock, J-O-C-K, dot chambers, C-H-A-M-B-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Also, if you're interested, check out First Do No Harm, which is an online course that breaks down the adverse effects of meditation. It's led by Dr. Willoughby Britton, who I mentioned in the episode. And it involves a series of methods for managing these meditation risks and negative outcomes. Astray is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio. Today's episode of Astray, Ryan Chambers, was produced, written, and narrated by me, Caroline Slaughter. Ankita Anand is my co-producer, and Gabby Watts is our supervising producer. Astray was scored by Jason Shannon, with sound design and mix by Toon Welders. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Brian Lavin. Special thanks to our voiceover, Van Gunter. humans. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.